You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. We are currently in a series called Covered in Dust, a journey through the book of Matthew, looking at the life, ministry, and relationship that Jesus had with his disciples that would later bring the kingdom of heaven through normal, everyday people. Thanks for joining us. Awesome. Happy Father's Day to you guys. Good morning. Anybody, uh, anybody dads here that it's uh, gathered with us this morning? Anybody raise your hand if you have any kids, any ninos, any little people? Uh, I certainly have plenty of those. I've got four uh, all the way from going into eighth grade this next year, which is just crazy. I've been watching a lot of Father of the Bride with uh, Steve Martin, trying to get into that transition. And my youngest is two. And uh, they say that the youngest is supposed to be the most docile, like the one that's the most chill, that kind of like, you know, gives you a little bit of a, of a break at the very end. He is not. Uh, he is a wild man, um, struggles to keep his diaper on. Uh, we are going through potty training. We, we're at, at about an 80-20 success rate, like batting 800. Uh, but um, it's gone down to about 200 now. So you could pray for us on that. Um, but, but happy Father's Day uh, to you guys. My dad, um, Cam Chow Wong. The bull is what they call him in Chinese, has been visiting with us. And so our party has turned into an absolute extravaganza. Usually we have six people in the house, and I think over the weekend it was something like 12. And um, my dad's name really does mean bull uh, in Chinese, um, Wang Gumzhao. Um, and he was born in the, in the year of a bull. And uh, he's turning 70 this year. And so uh, I think he's gotten, like, if he had any kind of... Um, uh, hesitation to being who he wanted to be and say what he wanted to say when he was in his 30s. He certainly doesn't have any of that in his 70s. And he kind of says and does what he wants. And so uh, he signs his name at the bottom of emails, the bull, which is pretty ballin'. If you're an Enneagram person, he's an eight with an eight wing. I don't know if you guys, if that rings a bell, but um, he, uh, he, he kind of just runs through, through walls. He doesn't go around. He doesn't climb over. He just goes through the wall, met, uh, physically, emotionally, all those sorts of things. Um, but I always could feel the presence of my dad uh, when he's around. I don't know if that's just because of his personality or because he's my dad, but I always knew where he was. I always knew how he stood on things. I always knew what he stood for. I always knew what he would say. I wouldn't really have to ask him. I already just knew like, what he was about. Um, we were in the pool the other day, uh, just yesterday at the pool, and the way that he, like, like he has so much militance inside of him, like the way he plays Marco Polo even sounds like he's giving out marching orders, you know what I'm talking about? He'll be like, Marco, <laughs> Polo, let's write, all right, let's go, ha, ha, ha. He served in the military for one year, and that was all that he needed, he just needed to make sure to do that. He was a lawyer, he was a police officer. Um, my dad was a hero to me, you know, like, uh, I remember these punks in, in, uh, in the library one time in New York where I grew up, um, started like knocking over the displays of the R.L. Stein Goosebumps books. And he was like, Hey, what are you doing? And, uh, and they're like, get out of here, you old man. And that was it. He snapped. He chased them all the way around the library. And the next thing I knew, the police escorted him up the steps and he was like, let's go. Let's, it's time to go. We, we can't be in the library anymore. Um, I remember he, he shouted down this guy. We were in uh, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Uh, in the middle of the night, we had just gotten done playing hoops at the gym, I think, and uh, he saw this guy, and uh, in the streetlight, he was like ready to like hit this woman. He was like in this fight with this woman. He was like, don't ever do that. He like went up to him and uh, yelled at him, and the guy said that he had a gun. And my dad, like, it was like, I was like scared, and I kind of knew he was scared too, but he like stood his ground. And uh, the, the lady ran away, and, and, uh, and the guy ran away. And I was like, why didn't you fight him, Dad? And he was like, that's okay. We're going to write the police report. It'll be way worse. And so he sat in the, in the police station and got that done. I could always feel the presence of my dad. I always knew where he stood on things. I always knew like, where he was. 
um, all the time. And, and um, there's things I can remember my dad told me 30 years ago <clears throat> that just stick with me, for better or for worse. Our fathers can, can build us up. Um, they, can, they can tear us down. Uh, they can speak identity to us. The thing is that dads, you know, like the father, like God the father, they, um, they protect us, they provide for us, but they also have the power to, to, to promote us in our identity. They have the ability to look into us and tell us things about ourselves that the minute before they told us, we didn't believe it, and then they told us, and then we did. I remember when I was going to quit um, Southside High School, I was two years in, and I called my dad, and he said, uh, I had told him the whole thing, and I was like, I can't do it, and like, I, I just, I thought I was going to be a good teacher, and I can't figure it out, and I think maybe I just like missed my calling, and he was just kind of like, if you quit the job, this challenge will be at your next job. I think you should stay. And then I picked up the phone to, to tell him basically I was going to quit and hung up the phone and I kept on going for three or four more years and just found my passion and found a joy that I never would have found without the words of my dad. The words of our dad are significant. And Father's Day is, is hard and painful sometimes. Um, many of us in the room have, have lost kids. Uh, many of us in the room don't have relationships with our kids the way we'd like, don't have relationships with our dad the way that we'd like. Um, there's a lie in that that really says that because of that, somehow we are um, uh, ill-equipped or further off from following God or walking to our purpose. And the reality is that no dad's perfect, and every dad fails. I'm a dad, and I fail, and you're a dad, and you fail, and our dads fail us. And part of life is figuring out what to thank our dads for and what to forgive our dads for. And sometimes there's a lot of counseling in that. Uh, but I just want to encourage you, wherever you are with your dad, if you know him, um, if you love him, if you are hurt uh, by him or having a hard time in the relationship, um, that, um, that dads just reflect God, they're not God, and that our God is perfect and lacking nothing. And, and so if you had a great relationship or a bad relationship, you're no more further off because all of us only have broken and fogged relationships compared to ultimately God the Father who has a perfect relationship with us through his son Jesus Christ this morning. And that's really what Father's Day is about on a spiritual level. I just have a quick um, message to share. I think it's, it's pretty simple um, uh, to share with us today. Um, but, but it closes up our series, which is cool, in Matthew, Matthew 28, if you want to take a look at it. Um, you might have, the, you might have the, the verse memorized. You know, It's something that has probably been preached to you several times. Um, it's the first time. I think uh, hopefully it'll be encouraging to you because... Um, these words are not just the end of the book, they're the end of Jesus' life, like it's his final words that he gives his disciples. Like All through the last couple of months, if you're just joining us, let me just catch you up. We've been looking at Matthew um, through, through the books. It's been about 25 different weeks of messages focused on the topic of discipleship, and the name of the series has been called Covered in Dust. Uh, covered in dust is a, is a discipleship term. It just means that following Jesus isn't just about knowing more stuff. It's about knowing the rabbi. It's being covered in the dust of the rabbi. The rabbinical tradition meant that you would follow your rabbi wherever, you, wherever he went, and you would be covered in everything that he said and did. And so you wouldn't just be a learner or a student. You would be an apprentice, kind of. You would watch what he would, he would say, and you would, you would say what he would say, and then he would do something, and you'd try and do what he did. And so that's what this whole series has been about, is, is what does it mean to be covered in the dust of the rabbi of Jesus? <clears throat> and today, um, there's this, this passage. I'm just going to read it, um, and it'll be on the screen for you as well. The closing remarks of Jesus um, to his disciples 
um, summarize all that it is that he's been doing with them this whole time. Like your last words, uh, if you had an opportunity for last words with people that you loved and cared about, you'd want to make them right. You'd want to make them precise, and you'd want to clarify what it is that you cared about most, what you stood for. And so in this message and in this passage, we have an opportunity to see the tell of the show, to see the, the summary of all of the moments that led up to this moment. And this is what I believe is the summary of Covered in Dust. I believe this is the, um, the, uh, the, the final punctuation exclamation part of all of Jesus's life. I believe that this, this, this message, this passage right here, um, can take what otherwise is 28 chapters of lots of parables and healings and teachings and moments with Jesus and summarize it all into one, uh, one proposition, one statement. And this is what he says to us uh, this morning. It says in Matthew 28, verse 18, it says, Then Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So in other words, um, if 99,000 philosophers got together and they said something different from Jesus, they would all be wrong and Jesus would be right because Jesus has authority. If 99,000 pastors and theologians all got together and said, I think that God and life is all about this, and Jesus said, no, God and life is all about that, Jesus would be right and they'd all be wrong because Jesus has authority. Lee Iacocca is a, is a great like, financial, um, um, you know, uh, fi business kind of like mogul person who has acclimated, accumulated tons and tons of wealth over his years, made all the right decisions, or mainly, mainly great decisions at the right times, has incredible amount of wisdom um, and, and vision when it comes to finances, and Jesus has more than him. The Beatles, some time ago, wrote some great songs and on the Johnny Carson show one day said that they are greater than Jesus, and they were wrong, because Jesus writes better songs than the Beatles. You see what I'm saying? It's not just a position, it's authority. And authority can't be taken, it can only be given. And so he's, what he's saying is that um, Caesar and Alexander the Great and Muhammad Ali, or whoever it is that has done great things in this world, uh, they all had to take their authority from somebody else, but I'm the only one that God gave me the authority of every tribe and tongue and nation under the sun. And so if I say something and everyone else says it's wrong, then I'm right and they're wrong. I have authority. And so any amount of authority that your father had in your life growing up until the day that you're alive today, God has more. And any amount of, of authority that your father spoke identity into your life to be a teacher, to be a doctor, to not give up, to not quit, to reach your potential, to push on and push forward. That actually wasn't his authority. It was God's authority in your life because God works through strands of human kindness to build you up to be a son and daughter of who you're supposed to be. And any amount of words that he used to abuse or neglect, to show and not show, to be passive or to be aggressive, towards you in the authority that he had, that authority was not his in the first place. It was borrowed, and ultimately all authority on heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus Christ. And he comes to this mountain, he comes to this place, and he says, and so with that weightiness, I want you 
to hear something and to know something about yourself so that if 99,000 other people tell you that this isn't true about you, it's still true about you because I'm God and they're not. And that I have authority and they don't. That I hung the moon and the stars and they didn't. That I was at the foundations of the world and they were not. And I formed you and I made you. And no matter what your voice says or the voice of any one other person that would try and borrow or take authority from you, I'm the ultimate authority and so you'll listen to me. And so he says, I have authority in this place. And he says, with that authority, this is my commission. This is who you are and what you're about. Because you know me, because you follow me, you're going to go make disciples. In fact, you're not only going to make disciples, you're going to make disciples of all nations. Of every tribe and tongue under the sun, there's 16,000 different ethnic groups that are gathered under the sun today. And he says, you're going to have a hand in changing all of those people. He says, not only are you going to change them, but you are going to, you're going to reach them, you're going to influence them, you are going to be so much like me and walk in an authority that I'm going to give you in all these places, so much so that once you get there, that not just like their government would change from like monarchy to democracy, democracy or their economic system, like not just like their behavior is going to change or their politics or whatever, like their whole identity is going to change. Like this is what it, what it means, right? To be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Like to change someone's name, if I said your name's not Roger anymore, it's Pat, <laughs> that's, that's a pretty strong change. It's not like, hey, on Tuesdays, will you come to small group with me? It's like, an identity change. For many of these 16,000 ethnicities, getting baptized means that you don't have your old family anymore. Like, it means that you don't have your old house anymore. You don't have your old identity. Like, it's not just a, a superficial cosmetic change, like go get a haircut or wear a different outfit. It's like an inside-out change. And they're going to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he says, you're going to teach them. And, and for me as a teacher, I'm like, oh, that's exciting. I think I could teach some things, you know, break out a few diagrams, do a couple charts. But then he says, not only teach them like so that they know something, but actually so influence them with your teaching that they're going to do something and be something completely. They're going to, do, to obey everything that I've commanded. So he sits up there with 11 of these guys. One of them just defaulted and took his own life because he betrayed Jesus. Some of them don't believe that he really is the Messiah yet. Some of them, it says, they were worshiping just a moment before, and it says explicitly, just before this great commission, they doubted him. Many of them still are waiting for him to come and topple Rome. None of them have the Holy Spirit fallen on them because Pentecost hasn't happened yet in Acts chapter 2, and yet he tells these 11 uh, naive, young, unill-equipped people, go change the world. I'll see you when you get there. All authority has been given to me. I'll see you when you get there. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. When, um, when Kyra uh, was little, we were talking about this passage this week, um, but she used to be a violin player. You guys didn't know that, but she's pretty killer with the violin. And um, Kyra's a strong personality. She's like a quiet eight. She's like my dad, but she's more like quiet. And, um, and so... Uh, she actually, let me tell her testimony real quick. One day she'll be up here and tell it. But um, she, uh, she came to Jesus this one time because um, 
with this one time, her, the time that she came to Jesus was, was because her family was all going to church. And her sister, Ashley, was so scared because Kyra would never want to go to church that Kyra didn't know Jesus. And so she'd cry all the way up to church. Kyra doesn't know Jesus and then cry all the way home. She still doesn't know Jesus. And uh, Kyra's like, I just do church by myself. I'll be in my room doing whatever I want to do, playing with my, I think she was eight years old. And so she said she was in a room, and one day she just felt so convicted and so compelled that she wouldn't go to God's house on Sunday morning when she was eight years old, that right then and there by herself and never looked back, she decided to follow Jesus. So she used to be a violin player when she was a kid, and uh, she was going to like this uh, competition thing that she had never done before. She had played in, in her room. And, you know, I think her parents were like, everybody has to play an instrument. And she was like, well, Fiddler on the Roof seems pretty cool. I'll just get a violin. And it was like $800 or whatever. And, she, and the parents got it for her. And she was like, okay, great. And so she practiced it and everything. And, uh, and so she, uh, she, she's on the way to this like competition thing. And she just keeps saying, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can play in my room, but I can't play in front of people. I hate this. I hate the violin. I hate all this, and I'm not going to play the violin. She's just like the eight, but the quiet eight. You know, she's like, I'm not going to do it. And her dad pulled over to the side of the road, and this is what dads do. And this is what dads need to do. And this is what encourages me to do on a more continual basis. But he looked at her in the eye and said, I'm not moving this car until you tell me that you can do this. And Kyra said, no, I'm not doing it. She ate it all over it. She just did the eight challenger thing. She's like, no, I can't do it. And the more you say that I can do it, it makes me say I'm not going to do it. And he just kept on looking at her the way that only a father can. You can do this. You can do this. You can do this. Jesus, Jesus' commission is significant because this is, what, this is what happens at the very end of the passage. This is a very simple passage, and I'll wrap it up in a minute here. But in, but in verse 20, it says, I want you to teach them to obey and do everything I've commanded you to do. And then he says this, and surely, he says, surely, I want you to know I have all authority and surely I will be with you always until the very end of the age. Jesus makes sure in the end of his great statement, his great commission, that not only does he infer to her that to, to, to the disciples, rather, that, that, that he has all authority, that his word is greater than any other word, and his opinion is, is more valid and legitimate than any other opinion. And he says, and surely, as you do this thing, you will not be alone. You are not um, making disciples on your own. You are not going into dangerous regions that, of, of untouched places of the gospel by yourself. You are not doing this in your own strength. You are not doing this with your own wisdom. You are not doing this by yourself. In fact, you are doing this. And as you do this, you need to know this one very important thing that you are never alone, that I am with you until the end of the age, that I am next to you and before you, I'm for you and I've not forgotten you and that I will be with you and that this thing is impossible without me, but it is inevitable with me that I have all authority and I will be with you until the ends of the earth. In fact, Paul, one of the great apostles who helped to spread this very message from the Great Commission, said several times in many of his letters, I preached dumber than I usually do to show how much more strong he is in my weakness. I think that sometimes that God uh, has us take, you know, these personality tests that I've been talking about this morning, whether it be Myers-Briggs or Enneagram, whatever else, because I think sometimes he likes to point at things that we're strong at. He says, oh, you're like this, such and such, the INTJ, da, 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 da. Let's circle that. Okay, that's a strength that you have. Okay, we will not be using you in those ways. I'm going to be using you in this way. 
Because it's not about your strength and what you are going to do by yourself with the 11 or the 12 or the 120. It's about me and my strength because I'm the one with authority, not you. And I'm the one with power, not you. And I'm the one that's with you that's going to see this thing through. If you see that making disciples is an impossible task, that's good because it is an impossible task without me. But you can do this. So go and make disciples. You're here to go and make disciples. Everything in this in this culture and everything in this world and your past and your history and things your father said and things your father didn't say, they're all going to come against this authority at one point or another. They're going to say you can't or you shouldn't or you won't or you, 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 you don't want to make disciples. But, but life is a big revolving door, a circle that continue will or, orbit you back to this verse until you find and rest your feet on that rock of Galilee with those disciples to realize that I'm not here for anything else but to make disciples. Have you ever thought about the fact that that heaven is a utopia, right? Heaven is a perfect place with a perfect father and only uninterrupted joy and intimacy. Of Psalm 16, as as, as Timothy was reading earlier, perfect joy and portion that that is uninterrupted in heaven. Have Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that if God loves us so much in a perfect world, why wouldn't he just beam us up today? I mean, all the things that we are thinking about right now, like we hope that summer rate goes well and we hope that there's going to be, you know, not too many kids in the swimming pool. We hope that, you know, we're going to get vacations. We're hoping we're going to get our work done. Like all of those things are in full-fledged fruitfulness and, and, and health up there. But yet we're still here. It would be an important question to ask, right? Like why are my feet on this earth? And why is my heart still beating? What's my purpose here? I mean, that's how you come up with with vision, right? Like, you have to ask yourself, like, what if this didn't exist? Why do we need to be here? And Matthew 28 is so clear. It's this simple. You're on earth to make disciples. Because disciples don't get made in heaven. Disciples only get made on earth. The reason why he has all authority on heaven and went down to the grave to take the keys back from Satan that Adam gave to him to raise up an authority again just before the passage in Matthew 28 is so that with authority he can say, you're not here to store up money, but to make disciples. You're not, you're not here to live comfortably. You're here to make disciples. You're here because in northern India, only 0.5% of northern India are gospel-believing Christians. And you're here because of them. Because the gospel doesn't just doesn't just disciple people on its own. Gospel disciples people through disciples. And he's saying the reason why you're not in heaven and the reason why your feet are here on earth is because you can't disciple people in heaven, but you can disciple people here on earth today. And that's why you're here. And life is a big orbiting, revolving wheel until we figure out and come back to the mountain of Galilee to hear this commission and hear this command that we are not here for ourselves. We are here to make disciples. We will not be satisfied in building ourselves up and our life up because that's not what we're wired for and that's not what we're made for. We're here to make disciples. The one that has all the authority, that hung the stars, the one who tells Lehi Coco what to do, the one who tells Elon Musk what he's thinking, he's the one that made it all. And so his opinion should matter more than theirs. And he's saying, with that authority, I'm going to tell you who you are and what you're designed to do. You're here and designed to make disciples. You're here to pour into lives. You're here to build people up. You're here to to help others get to Jesus. You're here to build up others' lives and not just your own. This is what your purpose is. Have you figured out what your purpose is? Have you understood why you were born? What, What your identity is all about is to make disciples. And so this is the the sermon in the sentence. The one thing that I want to say today, uh, it'll be up on the screen. 
about the Great Commission. Uh, and so this is what I see. The Great Commission, as it comes, um, it, speaks to, it speaks to what we're about. It speaks to our purpose. But it doesn't just do that. The Great Commission for somebody that's lost and confused and not understanding what their day is for and how to steward their emotions and why they're here on earth finds in the Great Commission a great calling, a reason for living, like a God-destined design for who we're supposed to be. But it doesn't just do that, right? Because Jesus could have come down and given the Great Commission in 45 seconds and gone back up to heaven. He didn't come to, 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 to give us another, another, another fact or another thing to do. We've got to ask ourselves, like, Jesus didn't live here for five minutes or 45 seconds. He lived here for 34 years or 33 years because he didn't just want to tell us about a way to the Father. He wanted to show us a way to the Father because he is a good friend and a good father in that way. He only says what the Father says and only does what the Father says. And so he walked down on this earth, was tempted by the devil in the, in, in, in the desert, was, was, was given to 34 years of life and ministry to, to show us the authority that he always had. And with that authority, he not only calls us, but he positions us to say, you can make disciples. The Great Commission is not just a statement to call us to the Great Commission. It's a, it's, it's a statement to to empower us to know that we can make disciples in the Great Commission. It's not just a statement to call us to something. It's a statement that tells us we can do something to remind you because you will, you will be discouraged. You will be um, uh, disillusioned. You will be hurt. You will be confused. You will be tempted in every other way to listen to other people's authority and other people's word. But the Great Commission tells us otherwise that we are called not to do every other thing under the sun but to, to make disciples, to be and make disciples. So I have five simple things that I believe can empower us today to make disciples. I believe it's our calling. I believe it's our purpose. And I believe that we don't get any of it done without him. The only thing that probably matters in all of that statement is the fact that he is with you even until the end of the age. These are five simple things that I want us to look at uh, this morning. And so um, a lot of times I think that with discipleship, um, people, people have a lot of what's in their life. They need more how. And if I explain what, what discipleship is, is, is I've understood it, and maybe you've understood it, is that discipleship shows us how to follow Jesus, not just that we should follow Jesus. It shows us that we can follow Jesus and that we have what it takes to follow Jesus. I think that most people, particularly in the South, are not not following Jesus because they don't know they should they just know, don't know that they can. And they need somebody to, to show them that in 2019, that they can follow Jesus and not lose their mind. And they have the authority and the power to walk out and follow Jesus. And so, um, so for example, on the very top uh, invitation, which we've been going through these one by one in, in the whole Covered in Dust series. Um, but Kyra was the first person to teach me that I could pray to Jesus like he was a person and not read a script. I remember specifically the very first time that we ever prayed together, it started off like, um, dear God, <laughs> Father, I'm scared. I really hope that this happens, amen. And you're thinking like, oh man, what was the prayer that like 
set your life on fire. Was it Billy Graham? Like, was it T.D. Jakes or something? Did he just, did somebody just wash in and just like kill some prayer and then that like ignited the church for prayer? No, it was like a um, dear God prayer. Because why? Because that prayer wasn't just a what, it was a how. It was like, do you know how to talk to people? Then talk to God that way. That's how your father loves you. You can speak to God that way. And when somebody does this in our life, when somebody opens up their life and shows us not a perfect example, but a living example of how to do this, all of a sudden, like, we don't keep track of this and we don't, you know, write it down and say, on this day, I remember that Kyra prayed in such and such a way and now I'm going to pray for this way. But what happens is we are hardwired to want to follow things that are not perfect, but doable. And, and, and when somebody shows us, presents to us a model, a life worth imitating, something that you can actually do, that's nine times out of ten way more empowering than something perfect that you can't do. And so maybe the fact that you're not great at praying out loud is your benefit and not your weakness. And maybe one of the ways you can start discipling people today, not tomorrow, is just by inviting somebody to pray with you. I have a good friend, Kristen Walker. Many friends in here have known Kristen Walker and love Kristen Walker. She's a dear friend. And she is famous for saying this, that people love a personal invitation. And I would concur to that. Maybe six times out of ten, people will turn you down on a personal invitation, but they will still always, ten times out of ten, feel honored and blessed that you saw fit to invite them to do something. And this is what it, discipleship is all about. It's not information. It's invitation. Come and just be a part of my life. All of the words up here that I want to go through one by one, they all have to do with time together, consistent, committed time together, that people see your character over time and your devotion to Jesus over time. And as you just follow Jesus with other people, it's amazing how much he can get done because he's with you even unto the ends of the earth. And so all you've got to do is just pray with somebody and say, um, God, I need you. And you might have just changed somebody's life. Can you think about that? You don't have to be a perfect example. You just have to be a living example. You have to be a willing example, an available example. Would you pray with somebody? Jesus started to change all of Galilee and everywhere that he went, they clamored around him and talked about him. Why? Because he didn't change his method. The first thing he would do for people was pray for people. Rick Warren, right? I heard a testimony about this is that, you know, he's baptized 19,000 people personally. Like he has led 19,000 people to Jesus. And it's pretty helpful that he has a TV station and all that. So that's helpful too. But his evangelistic strategy is simply this. I get to know people for long enough that sooner or later a prayer crisis comes up. And then I say, can I pray for you? And there's no better way to show somebody a come and see invitation than say, hey, can I pray for you and watch what God does in their life? It's part of his method. It's part of his design. He's been doing it since Matthew and he's doing it now. He wants to invite people to encounter him through the power of prayer. So the question is just, are you available to open up your mouth and pray with people? Will you be somebody that will be a friend with others? Maybe this is you. Maybe this is your gift. You know, not everybody is great at building relationship. And so you say, well, I'm not spiritual. I don't read the Bible or, you know, I don't know how to speak in tongues or pray for the sick. Do you know how to build a relationship? You say, yeah, like I'm good with people. I'm a salesman, man. I could I could I could connect with people. Did you know that that's a spiritual gift that God's given you on purpose to show somebody else who doesn't have that gift? That, that, that building relationships is a normal thing that you know how to open up your house. You don't have to make it perfect, but you know how to make somebody feel welcome. And if you invite somebody to come and do that with you and watch that and imitate that, you are opening up somebody's paradigm. They think, I'm not rich, I'm not funny, I'm not popular, I don't know how to build relationships. Well, if you show them not something that's perfect, but something that's actually living, something that's doable, you've empowered them the same way that Jesus has done in Matthew 28. Not that you should do this, but you can do this. Watch as I've done this with Jesus, because he's with me and he has authority and I trust his word more than anybody else's. 
If you know how to read, if you're literate, and maybe there's some countries that don't have as much as that, but I, I'm going to guess in this room that everybody's literate. If you're literate, what would it look like to just read the Bible with somebody else every day? What would it look like to read the Bible once a week in a city group every day or every week? I think that there's something that would change. I mean, I remember when somebody, you know, opened up the scripture and, and started to talk to me about how that scripture wasn't just from long, long ago, but how that scripture had to do with right now. I remember Andrew Cornetta, my friend in Bloomington, Indiana, um, and he never read with the this is and the thou's and the these and the don'ts and the do's. It was like he talked about the Bible as though it was the father talking to him. And we take that for granted. Some of us do, and maybe some of us don't. But if you don't know this, that Jesus speaks through a living and active word as though the Father is speaking to you directly. And every time that you open up, you know, uh, the red letters of any page, I've heard it said, and it's very, very accurate. If you don't know how to read God or if you don't know how to hear the voice of God, what you're really saying is you don't know how to read the pages of the scripture because reading the pages of the scripture is talking to God and talking to God is reading the pages of the scriptures through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Andrew showed me that, not by telling me to do it, but showing me. His passion, he'd say, oh, gee, I mean, we'd pray at Bible study. Bible studies, you know, what? I hope I know the right answer. Hope nobody calls on me. You know, like, that's how I'm doing Bible study. And he's like, Jesus, I just want this in my life. I want to, you know, I want to be a spirit and truth worshiper. I want to, I want to have that truth come alive into your spirit. And he would pray these things and talk about these things as though God was talking to him. And that was like revolutionary to me. You can cause a revolution in somebody's, in somebody's mind, in somebody's spiritual life, if you just decide one day to say, you know what, I'm not here to go make money. I'm here to make disciples, so I'm going to go read the Bible with somebody. It's as simple as that. It's just one simple thing. I'm not saying let's do all five. I'm saying let's pick one of these things. Let's serve with somebody else. I remember when Dustin Hughes invited me to be the interim youth uh, intern, which meant I did all of the dirty work uh, for the middle school, you know? And, um, and I remember like... Um, he got on me one time because it was like Ashton Kutcher and Punked was really cool. I mean, that's how old I am, guys. It's like Ashton Kutcher was really cool. And so, like, we got to, like, Charleston for this beach trip, and uh, everybody's all suntan and grumpy. You know what I'm saying? I had, like, I had, like, sunburn on my eyeballs. Like, the white on my eyeballs were all sunburn. And everybody's, like, all grumpy, and we're eating at the, like, Bubba Gump shrimp place or whatever. And uh, all of us, a couple of us, like, half the Euchre were like, Psst here's this really great idea. Let's wait till Dustin goes and like pays a check and then we're going to go and like steal the really good van with the air conditioning and kick all the bags out to the other van. And I was like, great idea. I'm a cool youth intern and everybody will like me. So I was like, let's do it. And so we crank in there and like halfway down the street, I get this phone call like, turn around right now. And I got this whole lecture about how I was dividing the youth group and uh, I probably was. It wasn't a very wise move of mine, but you learn a lot when you serve together. You learn a lot when you serve together. I had to learn that day that, that, that youth pastoring wasn't about getting kids to like you and being cool. Youth pastoring was about serving. It was finding the kid on the outside. It was about, you know, being uncomfortable for the sake of others. Like that was a, you would think you would know that getting into ministry, but, but we don't, you know, we don't. And we have to see that. And, and I think sometimes when we think discipleship is just mentoring where we sit and talk about each other's problems, but we don't actually get out and do stuff together. There's a whole array of things that Jesus wants to teach us that we totally miss. Because let's not remember the call to disciples is, is not come and have coffee. It's come and die right and so if we're still here four months later and discipleship's like man how's the relationship going how's this going how's that going that's a start but it's not a finish 
If discipleship is just about solving somebody else's problems through counseling, I don't know if that looks anything like what Matthew has looked like in the last couple of months. Discipleship has been movement and action and doing stuff and serving things. And that's why I think almost on these volunteer teams and, and, and frontline and doing ministry together and so forth, it's like we're, we're in like a greenhouse effect of constantly learning because we're not just talking about thoughts. We're being challenged with actual, with actual um, you know, things that, that, that have implications to them. They have, they have wins and losses to them, and that's what I think the come and die could look like. So I don't know what, what some of this could look like, but I'm, I'm saying, what would it be like to just choose one of these things and say, just invite somebody into them. Invite somebody to read the Bible. Invite somebody to come and serve. Invite somebody to go on mission with you. Um, you know, one of our, one of our elders, Tom, <clears throat> Tom um, goes down to, to Miracle Hill on Wednesday nights, and uh, he serves every single Wednesday. I never knew that he did it, but he goes down there and preaches. He says he actually preaches off of Matthew sometimes. Like, he gets the sermon from Sunday, and he goes down, uh, Tom Rolston, and goes and, and preaches on Wednesdays. And, 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 and he talked about how, uh, I think it was Kelton Cox at one point and other people in the church, how fruitful and important it was to bring people with him and to serve down there at Miracle Hill. What would it look like to go on mission, on your mission, and bring somebody along with you? There's a lot of, of surface area for learning and exploration and, and, and growing. This is the point, guys. It's, it's not one way. It's, it's, it's as many people as are in the room, there are ways to make disciples because you were made by a disciple-making person. You were made and created to make disciples. And this is what he has commissioned us to do. As we read the chapters of Matthew, and if you were to skim them back again, I think on every page you would see the same commission to make disciples. I am with you to make disciples. You have authority. I have authority, and I've given it to you to make disciples. And, and this is who you are. And when, when we feel like we shouldn't, and when we feel like we don't want, we, we feel like we can't, we have to remember that his word is greater than, than our word, and his testimony is greater than ours. And he's saying... He's saying you can make disciples, that I'm with you, and so you will make disciples, that you will influence and impact. I know you're not perfect. I know you don't have it figured out. I know you don't know how to read the Bible. I know you don't know how to pray out loud, but I'm going to show you because I'm a good father, and I'm going to speak purpose into your life. I'm going I'm to take your, your imperfect but living example. I'm going to put it on display, and it's going to release power into somebody else's life, not because you're perfect, because I'm perfect in you. I want you to lean into those weaknesses and trust me in those places because I'm with you until the end of the age and I'm, I've made you to be a disciple-making disciple. You, you have the wiring in you because you're like me to make disciples that make disciples. He came here not to show us what we can't do, but to show us what we can do in him to make disciples and make disciples. This is our intentional question this morning. I'll have everybody stand and we'll, um, we'll close and worship this morning. But it's a simple question. Who are you discipling and who is discipling you? We're, we're actually going to take a, a break from messages this next Sunday. We're going to worship um, this next Sunday. It's going to be a fantastic time. You guys are going to have a break from me talking, uh, which is going to be good for you. But we're going we're gonna to worship, and we're just going to um, go directly to, to, to the voice of the Father. If you struggle with anxiety or worry, I'm telling you the answer is worship. The answer is coming into the, the presence of God and hearing the voice of God. It's not another sermon. It's, it's, it's feeling the love of God and his presence release us from fear. And so we're going to spend time doing that. But the next five weeks after that, we're actually going to have a couple of different volunteer leaders that are here at City Lights come up on the stage to share um, with me in terms of sharing messages in the next couple of weeks beyond the worship morning to talk about um, these five things, these five exact um, priorities, values. The name of the series is going to be called Five Family Values. And we're going to explore through the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 rather, just that one portion, 
all of these values in life. Because what I've seen is really cool about this passage as well as the passage in the book of Acts is that disciple making isn't about you going to find somebody else and make disciples. Disciple making is about a family of disciples making disciples. It doesn't take a disciple to make disciples. It takes families to make disciples. And what we see in Acts chapter 2 is not a perfect example, but a living example. A family that is devoted to the rhythms of grace, of giving, of being devoted to the scriptures, of being devoted to fellowship and prayer and praise and thanksgiving. A, a template, a blueprint, not the only way, but a living way that the Holy Spirit fell on a group in Jerusalem and they changed the world because of it. They were simply devoted to some of these five practical rhythms to come and, come and see. Come and see how good he is. To come and be. Just belong. You don't have to be or do anything. Come and know and, and follow him. Come and die and come and Come and make disciples that make disciples. This is what we're made for. This is our purpose. This is what I believe we have our feet on this earth for for the next 30 and 40 and 50 years. This is what we are called to do. And so over the next couple of weeks in July, we're going to be looking specifically about practical examples. I'm not talking about being Billy Graham. I'm talking about going to the same supermarket and smiling at the person that checks you out. I'm talking about, you know, having a five-minute devotion could change your life and change the trajectory of your family's life and your neighborhood's life if we would just commit to the simple practices, not perfect, but simple practices of discipleship and family. These are some of the things that I want us to talk about in a discussion, not a sermon, a conversation. How are you learning to make disciples? That's what I want to know from the people that will join me on the stage. And I want to share my heart, and I think it's going to be a great time. So if you're here and around in July, I would love for you to make every single one of those. We're going to talk about that for the next couple of weeks. Let me pray for us as we, uh, as we close up this, this series and worship this morning. Um, God, I ask uh, in, this, in this closing moment as we just worship, you do something special in the lives uh, of the people gathered here. Um, I think it just shows a faith that your Matthew 28 message is alive today, that there's people in this room. I mean, that 11 people in Galilee somehow translated into this room. I don't know how that happens except that you're with us, God. And so for the purpose that you drew each one of us, not to do the step of the person next to us or the step of the sermon that I shared today, but the step that you're calling each person to, God, would you not just give a calling, but a boldness, God, uh, a commission, God, uh, uh, an empowering, a sense, of, a sense of not just that I'm calling you, but that you can do this thing and give, give, give a igniting um, empowerment to the people that are, that are here in this room. And so as we praise and as we close our time in worship this morning, um, I ask that you would do that spiritual work, that you would bring increase, that only you can do that. I ask that the authority that you spoke with in that, in that passage would just somehow resonate deep in our heart that even all the opinions of ourselves or all the opinions around us about who we are and what we're about would begin to kind of fade away. That your voice would increase and the voice of, of, of the world and of fear would begin to decrease in God. That you would ignite us for a faith uh, that, would, that would be sent from this commission to go and make disciples. And so I thank you, God, for um, our time this morning. And I thank you for your power that is poured out on this place because of who you are and because of your promise to us in Jesus' name. We at City Lights are so grateful to have worshiped with you today. We are a church that exists to be followers of Jesus who are devoted to building family, blessing neighborhoods, and bringing good news to the nations. For more information on our church, visit our website at www.citylights.cc and give us a follow on Instagram or Facebook. We hope you can join us again soon.